0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome to our fourth class on the Anapanasati Sutta. And I think as we've been doing in earlier classes, um, we'll ask you all to say your names and to um, pass the microphone around. So we'll start here.
1: Brian?
2: Oh,
0: wait, I'm sorry. I have to turn that on. Usually that helps to hear microphones if you actually turn them on. Okay, there we go.
1: Brian. Barbara. Bill. Ike.
3: Anne. Bonnie. Linda.
1: Nemo.
0: Great, thank you. It's nice to see you all. So I wasn't here uh, last week. I did listen to the recording of my esteemed colleagues here, uh, Kim and David. And so I know that uh, last week that we discussed, or I say we, you guys discussed the third and the fourth tetrads and did some practice with them. And then they sent you off with some homework um, to, if you wanted to, to go ahead and read that part about the fulfillment of the four foundations And also, if if it was of interest to read the Satipatthana Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 10, which has these four foundations, the four establishments to help you understand that. If you didn't read it, that's fine. We'll talk about that. So we're going to build on that today. Today we're going to talk about the relationship between these tetrads and the four foundations, the four establishments. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. We're going to, David's going to explain the four foundations today but I did want to um, just spend a minute reminding us what are these 16 different steps we've been talking about 4 tetrads, 4 times 4 equals 16 so I'm just going to list these we've discussed them preceding weeks but just to bring them um, to mind here so to understand the long breath understand the short breath experiencing the whole body, tranquilizing the bodily formation. That's the first tetrad. And I'm using the same language that is in the sutta. We've been talking about different uh, alternative translations, different way to understand it, but for now I'm gonna be using the same language that's uh, in the sutta. So that's the first tetrad, the second tetrad. Experiencing rapture, experiencing pleasure, Experiencing mental formations, tranquilizing mental formations. Second tetrad. Here's the third tetrad. Experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, liberating the mind. And then the fourth tetrad contemplating impermanence, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, and contemplating relinquishment. So as I mentioned today, we're going to talk about these tetrads in the groups of four and how they're related to the four foundations of mindfulness, the four establishments of mindfulness. And today we'll have some small group discussion and a little bit less meditation than what we've had in some of the earlier ones. So maybe with that as an introduction, I'll turn over to David, who'll introduce this idea of the four establishments or the four foundations. Oh, sorry.
4: Yes, (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, that is it. Does people have comments about um, from last week? Uh, some of the practice, some of the reading.
4: Questions, thoughts.
0: Can you use a microphone? Can you send one?
4: Unless you plan to get it, get to this later, um, can you repeat the second tetrad? I want to make sure i understand why those four go together as a tetrad see the relationship between them because i don't think i got that when you were
0: yeah i'll say what they are why they go together as a tetrad is a big long discussion but uh, something that we can play with and explore and experiment with for ourselves as practitioners experiencing rapture experiencing pleasure Experiencing mental formations, tranquilizing mental formations. Any more comments or
3: questions?
2: I just want to say I learned a lot last week. I was really um, blown away by the depth of the sutta. Yeah. I just said I learned a lot last week. It really kind of changed my whole attitude and maybe understanding of the whole uh, practice. It was very helpful. Thank you. That's fantastic to hear.
0: I know sometimes... um, of my colleagues or friends were like oh diana why do you do that sutta study stuff you really should just be meditating and i've discovered that they go together not all the time sometimes there's just a time to meditate and maybe there's a time when your the mind wants to study but i'll say for my own that they really my own experience they really go together i think this is true for for all of us yeah
4: I think I'll use this microphone. But but I guess there may be time for additional questions too. Is there any other question or thought? No.
3: Um, I wasn't here last week, so I might have missed this. And also, I haven't done very much sutta study. But wouldn't the suttas be the foundation of the practice? Isn't that where the practice comes from? Or does it come from lots of different foundational texts? I I mean, you said they go together. I'm just wondering, are they the foundation for the practice?
4: Yeah, I, I think I might just say something to that, and also back to kind of Barbara's comment. Just that I think the um, it's actually just my voice is is soft. Can can I am I is my voice heard? Uh, two microphones. No, I think I think uh, Diana's gonna turn me up slightly. I apologize for my voice. Yeah, I think the the texts have a way of presenting the teachings in this very pithy form that, among other other things, allows us to sort of um, bring our practice to it in a way that sometimes isn't all that um, easy to do with teachings that are talked out at, at great length of the sort you might find in a fully formed Dharma talk or the like. So they they do have this sort of magical ability when we return to them. I think that's one of the reasons we've all found them so valuable too. So to sort of spark a, a a you know a new response that that cuts right through some of um some of all the other ideas we have to these core practices. I'd say that, and I'd say too, just that the um they're so practice focused at least this one. And some others like this, in other words, they they return us to the practice instead of to ideas about freedom or suffering, or they really keep just saying, "In this case, return to the breath right right keep the breath in mind as there's some awareness of um, to Bill's question of joy or rapture or um, the like happening
5: so i th- I think the text can serve a number of purposes and probably all of those are within the suttas um, so one of them is this instructional part you know they convey the thanks that sounds a little better Those they convey the main instructions that the Buddha was wanting to get across and at least for my personality or my proclivity I want to go back and I want to read the the close to the source as I can that feels right to me because you know every Dharma teacher will give you their instructions or you can read a Dharma book that's written by a modern teacher that's, you know, interpreting this, but it's not this exactly, and so I feel like going back. So that's a a very important part of the text. They can serve other purposes too, though. The texts convey wise view. You know, when you read them you will get an understanding, a way of seeing things, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the Fourth Foundation today. This this idea of seeing things through a lens that is the structure of the teachings that the Buddha taught, and it is actually important that uh, when we view the text, we understand that we're coming from a certain perspective. It's not the scientific perspective, it's not the Christian perspective, it's a, you know, there is a perspective offered here. Not that we're going to hold on to it, but we'll eventually let go of it. And there are other, yet other things conveyed by texts. Um, not as much these early suttas, but the later Buddhist traditions, the texts uh, convey a sense of the goal, and they're actually just kind of amazing descriptions of what might happen to your mind and they're kind of pointing, direct fingers pointing at something and they don't actually have a lot of instruction in them but they're meant to kind of open the mind or inspire the mind in some way. And I know somebody uh, who is a Tibetan practitioner who has studied a lot of Tibetan texts and knows Tibetan and reads them in the original and he feels that um, a lot of the texts are misinterpreted as instructions, and that people are looking for instructions in texts that don't have any. And he's uh, picked out, he's worked hard to pick out the threads of instruction that there are in Tibetan texts and highlight them. Whereas I feel like we have the opposite problem in Theravadan it's all instruction, and people sometimes wonder where's the goal? You know, it doesn't really say exactly what that is. And so this is a much more detailed answer than you may have been pointing at. But in a study course, maybe we get a, a bigger uh, perspective like that. So I think you're, you're right on. Is it mostly, yeah, uh, there's a lot of instruction here. And at least for all of us conveying them, we feel it's really important to read them directly. Yeah. Do you want to add anything?
4: Nothing to add to that, but it's a nice that provides a nice transition to this um, to a brief discussion of the of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Satipatthana, the four establishments or four foundations or four establishings of mindfulness, and the Anapanasati Sutta, this this set of instructions we're saying, right? But also descriptive phrases about what happens when one meditates in this in this fashion. Um, because Kim 's just made this point about instructions I, I really love to look as i I probably said um, maybe too much last week. I like to really let these instructions be there too, as just descriptions of how practice unfolds when we when we bring mindfulness to what 's going on in our experience, um, just that sort of that fundamental, if not instruction orientation of our attention is um, is profound in its ability to sort of open things up for us and um, provide a place to hold experience. So you can't have been around this scene for very long. can't have been around IMC for very long. can't have read too many books of the sort that Diana mentioned very long, or perhaps it was Kim mentioned very long, without coming across this phrase, this idea of the four foundations of mindfulness and this underlying text, the Satipatthana Sutta in which these four foundations are described at length and for which we're provided a set of descriptions of how somebody practicing with them practices or, if you want, a set of instructions. Um, I'm just going to talk briefly about the correspondence or possible correspondence between them and the instructions or four tetrads in the the, uh, Anapanasati Sutta. And bring your attention to a repeating phrase that, or a a phrase that opens the Satipatthana Sutta, because I think it's useful to us. And then later, somebody will, um, um, Diana will talk a bit about the fourth foundation. It would be, I think, um, easy to go four, four, four foundations of mindfulness, four tetrads, and to just assume that there's sort of an easy uh, overlay. And there may be. Quite a bit of intervaluable interrelationship, and yet they clearly weren't created with this overlap in mind. As far as we understand, some of the correspondences that we can experience were, were perceived and understood, and that seems to be perhaps why the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, are mentioned in this Anapanasati Sutta. Um, but very briefly, the four foundations are body sensations, physical sensations, sometimes called feeling tone, uh, mind, and uh, patterns of experience or mind objects. <clears throat> and as you've already recognized, in the first tetrad there's focus on body, that is particularly the breath. Bill's question has drawn our attention to the second tetrad in which feelings, sensations, along with Mental uh, the beginnings of mental reactions to those feature. The third foundation of mindfulness, mind, is represented in the focus in that third tetrad on gladdening the mind, steadying the mind, relaxing, releasing, or uh, resting the mind that we talked about last time. And Diana will talk more about uh, objects of experience. And I think... um, I'll leave it there for the moment, and we'll see some of those correspondences come up in the guided, which is where it's really, I think in the practice, uh, maybe it's most valuable uh, to be sort of less analytic and more just sort of curious about the correspondences. In the opening passages of the Satipatthana Sutta, there's this wonderful... uh, set of uh, answers to the question, how? In other words, okay, we're supposed to establish mindfulness in these four kind of realms or arenas of experience. And it says a note about how. Here, says the text, a practitioner abides contemplating the body as body, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. The practitioner abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, alert, fully aware, mindful, having a put-away covetousness and grief for the world. He or she abides contemplating mind, as mind, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Practitioner abides contemplating mind objects or patterns of experience, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And uh, the important aspect of the how here is the way we sit in awareness of our experience, whether that mindful attention be directed to aspects of bodily experience, the mind, patterns or objects, uh, mind objects or patterns of experience. And perhaps each of these is important, but um, that we do it ardently, that we do it with interest, that our hearts be in it, that we do it fully aware and mindful, that we're really um, um uh, fully vigilant in a sense to what's going on and that in particular that we do it having put away covetousness and grief for the world the easiest way to think about that at least strikes me today after sitting the half day with Gil is that we withhold judgment about it what, what comes up in experience we don't um, uh, we, we try to recognize preferences when they arise and just sort of let those be there and go their way too that we try to Um, interact with experience without making it always about us all the time, which uh, is natural, natural aspect of mind but that we're just attentive to that and we sort of put those things to one side that we sort of have a not now uh, attitude toward the things that tend to draw us into experience in ways that are complicating and that involve stress.
0: Okay, so I'd like to build on what David was just saying and bring in back to our text, the Anapanasati Sutta, mindfulness of breathing. Is this a little loud? It feels a little loud for me, a little echoey. Thank you. So, this is a microphone one. You can just turn it down a little bit. So, in our text here, the Anapanasati Sutta, I'm in section 23. Which is the very first sentence after the heading fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness? And I'll just read this out loud. And how because does mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness? So David was just describing what are these four foundations? And the question is asked, how does these sixteen steps we've been doing, how do they Fulfill, the four foundations of mindfulness. Fulfill is a little bit of an awkward word. Um, We could understand it as bring to fruition, bring to perfection, bring to its potential, make it as rich as it can be, something like that. I can think of something like that. Then the next four paragraphs here in this sutta have a formula this is something that's kind of fun with a uh, sutta study. You start to recognize the formulas. So here's the formula. It says, bhikkhus, on whatever occasion, a bhikkhu, and then it describes a tetra, verbatim. And then it says, on that occasion, and then it has this formula uh, that relates it to one of the four foundations of mindfulness, In the case of uh, section 24, on that occasion, Abhikyu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. That is verbatim out of this other text that David was just describing. Then, the next part of the formula is what's unique. There's a sentence that's thrown in there which is purportedly is the Buddha who's describing why is this tetrad in the Anapanasati related to this foundation in Satipatthana? There's this one sentence. In the case here, it says, "I say that this is a certain body among the bodies, namely, in-breathing and out-breathing." And then the last part of the formula is that is why. On that occasion, Abhikkhu abites contemplating the body's body the body, aren't fully aware, mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. So there's this one sentence there that's not kind of formulaic, and that can be the key here. So but it turns out that sometimes these sentences aren't that helpful. It's not that uh, it's not so obvious. And maybe I'll say, for me, as a, um, when I was first starting to do sutta study, I had to relax this idea that I wanted things to be neat, tidy, clear, unambiguous. We're kind of used to maybe Western philosophy or you know, even kind of Western thinking or books. That's not what's preserved here in the suttas from thousands of years ago in a different culture. It's not preserved in a way that makes perfect sense. So instead... For me, I'll say this, and maybe it's true for Kim and David also, you kind of feel your way in. Like, what is this pointing towards? And you often sometimes ask yourself, hmm, is this right? Is this right? Because there's some, um, I could go on and on about this, but there's um, more and more where we, I'll just use this expression, we might see what we could call like scissor marks. Like, oh, this got pulled out of here and cut and pasted into there, and maybe it didn't, there was a little piece forgot to get cut it and paste, or something like this. So it's just an interesting thing to hold in mind. And if I were sitting up here just in the role of a Dharma teacher, I wouldn't point these things out. I would offer an interpretation in which you can. Um, practice with it in which you can find freedom and peace and ease. But part of sutta study with dharma teaching is a way to point out like it's not just cut and dry, it's not so straightforward. There's room here for us to interpret it. And I'll say in particular this Anapanasati sutta, there's been lots of scholars and lots of practitioners and lots of scholar practitioners who have interpretations and they don't agree. So I've, for myself, I find that it's permission to okay find my own way with this. It's not like there's one single way. So then, now I'll we'll say, getting back to this particular, this f- um, section 24, this first tetrad. how is it related to the first foundation of mindfulness? This first, yeah, in the Satipatthana Sutta. How are they related? First, uh, if I ignore that one sentence, I'll say, it's exactly the same words. If you were to go back and look at this uh, first foundation of mindfulness, that's in the Satipatthana Sutta, exact same words as we, what we see here in the Anapanasati Sutta. So that one is kind of easy to see how Anapanasati fulfills the fourth. Uh, sorry, the first foundation. But then we have this sentence: "It's uh, a certain body among bodies." We do know, just like in English, we have this expression, a body of water, a body of uh, work, or something like this. So we use the body in different ways other than just um, like a physical body. So maybe here the Buddha is highlighting of all the different things that body can mean. I'm here pointing to in-breathing and out-breathing what's happening here and now in your own physical body that's how one fulfills the first foundation of mindfulness with the first tetrad. And then in came we'll talk to us about the second and the third.
5: Okay, so as we move into the connection between the second tetrad and the second foundation of mindfulness and then the third, it's a little bit less clear than it was in the case of the first matching the first but we're going to, as Diana so nicely said, we're going to kind of feel our way into it and see so the second tetrad uh, which we've now heard a couple of times so I'll say even more briefly essentially encompasses joy, happiness mental for the mental formation and the tranquilizing of the mental formation and then in the Satipatthana Sutta, the second Foundation or establishment of mindfulness is about the sensations or the feeling tone. And in particular, the practice offered is that the pers- the meditator is to notice whether a feeling is pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. So there are sort of three options and they seemed, would seem to cover everything you know, among those. And then in addition, after that kind of top-level survey, there's a distinction made between sensations that are Mm, there's different translations, but we could say worldly and unworldly or sensual and spiritual, I've also heard. Um, So there's a kind of a further refinement of those into things that are related to coming in the sense doors, more external inputs and things that are coming internally due to our wholesome mind states and other things that are more generated internally. And again, we have this phrase, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So those on the surface may not be totally related. I mean, there's nothing particularly about feeling tone, although of course the joy and the happiness would be a pleasant feeling tone. And the sentence um, that is uh, used here using the structure that Diana outlined is that he says, I say that this is a certain feeling among feelings, namely giving close attention to in-breathing and outbreathing. So a certain sensation among all the sensations is that we choose to pay attention to the breath. Okay, that's fine. But how does feeling tone come into that, of the pleasant, painful, and neutral? Um, Here's where I'm then going to pull in from experience. You know, why do these seem to be related? I have found that there are definitely feeling tones associated with paying close attention to the breath. You know, this, the breath is coming in. Once we've got that con- continuity of mindfulness where we're following it from beginning to end and back to the beginning we notice that there's a whole series of sensations. The breath isn't just one thing. We might call it breath, but that's a concept. Even in-breath is a concept. And it's actually that there's this whole kaleidoscope of sensations that start with the touch of the breath on the nostrils or the upper lip, and then there's this flow and the temperature, maybe it's cool coming in, and there's a tension as the um, lungs stretch, and maybe there's a shift of the clothing against the skin, and then it goes out and it gets more and more subtle at the end. And these are not, many of this is neutral, but if you look carefully... There is, at the very beginning, say, I find often a pleasant feeling tone of the rush of the air coming in, there's some energy, Um, and then at the very end, when it's just diminishing and it falls away and there's that little gap, (gasps) is it going to arise again? There can be actually a moment of fear there, which for the most part we skip over, Um, but that's also the place where the mind is most likely to lose mindfulness. That's usually where we drift off, because the sensations are a little weak. So we can start to see that just paying close attention to these sensations, um, especially if we're looking for the ones that are related to, say, joy and happiness, we start to bring in this tone, the feeling tone. And we start to see our reactions, to these mental formations, which David connected nicely to the slight reactivity or maybe sometimes major reactivity that we have to how our sense organs are interacting with what's coming into them. And there's no way you could really pay close attention to breathing and not start to have this impact, especially as things get more quiet, right? So there's this sense that um, we're now starting to, through a a meditation that is nominally bodily, we're starting to encounter the mind. And this is exactly what feeling tone is, or sensation. It's the link between the body and the mind. It's the response. We're responsive beings. We're not like scientific instruments that just measure, okay, that was a strong sensation, that was a weak one. We care about these things coming in, and we have reactivities to them. So that comes out a bit in this, in this second foundation and second tetrad. But I encourage you to see for yourself how you think they're connected. And then I'll just say briefly, going on to the third, um, this one concerns the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind and liberating the mind, which when we talked about it last week, we emphasized in the concentrating, we emphasized two aspects. One was the steadying and the other was a sense of wholeness in the mind that by the time we've gotten to this step we've really brought everything in and then the liberating part we emphasize the the lightness of experience is that at this point the mind is just present with everything and it's therefore very easy to slip into the next step of noticing that it's changing but there's this flux of sensations coming through and the mind is large enough to be holding all of that so now the third foundation in the satipatthana so now we're going to try to link these is that we have a bunch of qualities that we're supposed to notice are present or absent in the mind. So first we notice whether the mind is affected by lust or not affected by lust, whether it's affected by hatred or not, delusion or not. So those are the three main taints in the mind, as they're called. And then a bunch of qualities. Is the mind contracted? Is it distracted? Is it exalted, unexalted? Um, various other ones, ending with two that will look familiar, concentrated or not concentrated, liberated or not liberated. Well, those are the uh, last two steps of the third tetrad. So there's a direct link. But I think overall we can say that the... um, Well, let me first say what uh, what the text actually says, and this one is extremely vague. It says essentially that Because we are encountering these things in the mind with mindfulness and full awareness, which are part of that satipatthana, um, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, that is kind of the interface. That is sort of why we're including factors of mind. And then the Buddha says, I do not say that there is the development of mindfulness of breathing for one who is forgetful, who is not fully aware. So this is trying to link into the, one of the other aspects of the word sati or mindfulness which is that it's related to memory. Um, that's a, actually another... The word sati in Pali is used both for memory and for this meditative quality of mindfulness that we cultivate. So in, to my mind this is a little vague and a little um, not such a strong connection. The commentary has some comments about, yeah, just indicating that the presence of mindfulness and full awareness indicates that the meditator is including factors of mind, and hence the third foundation. But I would link this, and that's well enough, but from my own practice, I would link these really through the sense of completeness and complete non-judgment, which David pointed out in his description So what's striking to me about the third foundation of mindfulness is that there is no judgment about anything coming up in the mind. You notice if the mind is affected by lust or not affected by lust, and that's it. You don't say, if it's affected by lust, make sure you get rid of that lust because it's not a good thing to have in there. Affected by hatred? Oh, apply right effort to bring in more wholesome qualities to the mind. It doesn't say that, it just says notice. Notice this, and also notice the absence, which is interesting in and of itself. And similarly, by the time we get to the third tetrad, we've included everything. We've included the whole physical structure, we've included the whole mental activities, we've included the entire sense of knowing, that's what we used for for what mind is. And then we've liberated it from all that by not identifying with it. You know, it's just, it's here, it's not here, the mind is as it is. And we know it as that. So, to me, the f- it's really the kind of the sense of the um, the third foundation and the third tetrad that are essentially the same. We have this wholeness, this lightness, this non-judgmental of just knowing everything that's coming into the sense doors and the mind. And. At that point, I think we'll—that's um, a lot to absorb. So maybe it's a good time, actually, to let the words just flow through. And David's going to lead us in a, a guided meditation.
4: Yeah. So why don't we see um, if we can sort of bring these bring these two sets of Point, pointing out instructions or descriptions of practice uh, together in some fashion. So we're sitting here breathing together. Let's, um, Let's really bring some attention to to that breathing and to how we're breathing. Let's bring our hearts to the breathing. We're not just sitting here breathing in and out. We're 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 with the breath. We're accompanying the breath, showing up for experience with a heart that's full of good intentions for ourselves, for others we meet in our path. we're alert we're at ease we're balanced between effort and allowing and we're sort of letting go of preference covetousness pushing things away at least for a short period of time we'll just watch what comes up be with what comes up accompany what comes up hold what, what comes up Without, without struggling with it too much. As we bring attention to the breath just by being ardently aware of the breath, just by letting the breath be, it tends to calm itself. We breathe in and out and we notice the breath is long, the breath is heavy, the breath is deep. We notice the breath is light, the breath is short, the breath is shallow. Just knowing the breath just being intimate with our experience introduces some ease. As we notice the breath, we notice the whole the whole length of the breath. We notice the part we call the in breath. The little pause at the peak the out breath typically a longer pause we notice how it feels as it comes in through the nose cool, out, warm maybe we notice the shoulders move maybe we notice the abdomen move maybe we feel the hands even moving very slightly as we breathe in and out The whole body moves. This is what we call the breath. These sensations of moving, filling, energy, oxygen, rest, ease, letting go. It's an intimate way of knowing bodily experience being mindful of the body as a body, just, just as a body, just as it is, just as it comes to us in these sensations, simple knowing of bodily experience. When we pay attention to experience, we notice that there's pleasant in experience and there's unpleasant our mind moves towards pleasant moves toward and then away from unpleasant and there may be a lot of experience that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant the mind is attentive to pleasant and unpleasant that's one of the many useful things that mind does But here we're just noticing simply the quality of that experience of those sensations that come into awareness. Just notice, oh, there's some unpleasant. It's just some pleasant, just some neutral. As we sit with experience of sensations, the the mind sort of tingles with awareness of pleasant and unpleasant. Something's pleasant one moment, unpleasant a little later. Something compelling arises that's just neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And we just view these things, the sensations, the first mental reactions, just as they are. We try to leave wanting and pushing away on one side it's natural to move toward pleasant it's natural and ordinary to move away from unpleasant we can just notice that movement oh there's some unpleasant and there's sort of a backing away or a suspicion or a inkling of aversion As we just let pleasant be pleasant, unpleasant be unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, come and go, a certain spaciousness can open up. The mind isn't grabbing at pleasant. It's not pushing unpleasant away. It's not making a particularly big deal of sensation and of the mind's response. There can be a gladdening of mind. Breathing in, breathing out, gladdening the mind. Breathing in, breathing out, steadying the mind. Experience arises. There may be a pushing away, there may be a pulling toward. The mind may have a subtle attitude about what's happening in experience, and we just let that be there. As we know, the mind is mind, doing natural mind things. Just observe it as it is, without covetousness, without grief, without preference or opinion. The mind gladdens, the mind steadies itself, and the mind rests.
5: Are there any questions or comments at this point? Either from the first three tetrads or anything that came up in your experience in meditation?
1: Yes. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak just a little more about this relationship of memory and mindfulness
4: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and how I was thinking about it during my meditation was um, this relates to a class I'm taking which is uh, on for the the premise of it is for information to exist, it must always be instantiated by a medium. And I was realizing that information is kind of like memory and the body is the medium for this to arise. I think I'm about to have, uh, uh, what what is it, the past dhyana, uh, an insight, (laughs) Uh Uh, at the insight center. (laughs) Uh, But I'm wondering about this relationship between mindfulness and memory.
5: Hmm. I'm sure more than one of us could comment on this. Um, When the Buddha describes what he means by mindfulness, which is, he never gives a very succinct, clear definition, but he'll either say, in my understanding, he'll name the four foundations of mindfulness, or he will say something like, a person is someone of good memory they remember what was said and done long ago and there's a sense of um that the sati is related to somehow having a um a clear idea not only of what you're doing now but of um having been mindful at the time, you'll be easy to remember things. And so there's a way in which our practice is tuning up our minds to be attentive in a way that's useful, not only in this moment, but over time to be able to... This is now a little bit my interpretation. Um, And so he's not talking about, you know, we we get worried because, you know, as we all get older, the memory is not as um, sharp. (laughs) But... um, So he's not saying, no, you have to remember all your telephone numbers and appointments and everything, but more a sense of if you're really present and calm, um, then what's useful goes into the system and is available for you later, teachings or experiences or things to come up. So that's maybe a sort of an abstract answer to your question. I'm not sure about the instantiation of information. Um, Certainly memory does get stored in our bodies in the form of, you know, feelings and emotions and old traumas and stuff, which we will discover in meditation. I would suggest that the mind also has some way of doing this. Although there are later traditions with the momentariness, it's less clear how that would happen. So I'll stop there. Um, my exploration of mindfulness and memory mostly has focused on if my understanding that if my mind is in an open, receptive, clear state, then I will take in information that is useful for my path and it will be available later. That's kind of my understanding. But please. So maybe I'll add something. Uh,
0: yes to what Kim is saying. And the way that I've been holding this connection between uh, mindfulness and memory is both of them is related to bringing things to mind in some ways maybe that's related to what you're talking about so I'll just offer that
4: Yeah, I, I I would also say, and um, I think a way that can be useful to kind of hold it in practice, and it's an important question because this term sati and the translation of it, mindfulness, or occasionally heedfulness, uh, are really so central to our to our tradition. Um, but I think one of the important things about practice is it's easy to feel like the objective of practice is to hang on to the breath at all costs with the fingernails. But perhaps um, an equally valid objective in practice is to keep returning to the breath, returning to the experience of being here now. And there's a memory function in there because, as you know, when mindfulness arises and you realize, oh, I'm not meditating anymore, I'm making dinner tomorrow night, or I'm thinking about what happened in my childhood, we remember to return To here and now so that that's that's the practice that's the strengthening of that of that um of that willingness to sit with what's coming up right now so i like phrases too like um to keep the breath in mind right and there's a memory function there that is that's both has it present but has that return in there
0: There another question or comment so Barbara, let's see we have two microphones over here can they at least one of them migrate in that direction
2: i'm wondering that um, the process of meditations as we get from the body to the feelings to the mind it goes from more external to more interior does that also mean that we um, naturally becomes more detached from the body as well as from the sensation, it become less identified because you mentioned many times just observe and be aware. So and also the different phrases that one of the, that Diane pointed out was kinda of outstanding is that you notice a body as a body among all the bodies. So to me that kinda of means you become disidentified with yourself, identifying with the body as well as probably your thoughts and your feelings—is that the progression of the meditation? Absolutely. Yeah, this is
0: fantastic, Barbara. You point this out. We're going from the obvious to the subtle in the sutta, both anapanasati and satipatthana, and in that going from the obvious to the subtle, there's also more and more disidentification. There's a little bit less self, me, mine, and that both of these directions are the directions towards freedom and maybe I'll use this as a segue to just talk a little bit about this fourth tetrad and the fourth foundation I'll just introduce the fourth foundation if you're not familiar with this it's a list of lists there's a lot of stuff in there so I'm just gonna um, talk about it with some broad brush strokes so this fourth foundation, sometimes it's translated here it's "used mind objects," sometimes it's uh, translated as "phenomena," and sometimes it's left untranslated. The word is dhamma, dharma, and sometimes um, that gets that word gets translated as "things" because there's not such a good word. So, but maybe we'll say "phenomena" or "categories of experience" or something for the fourth foundation. So what's in this category, fourth foundation? What are these lists? Five aggregates, I'm sorry, five hindrances. You don't, and maybe I'll back up and say, it's okay if you don't know what these lists are. Don't worry about trying to know what all these are. That's like another place. And I'll talk about them in broad brush. So just, I just want to introduce so you know about them. Five hindrances, things that get in the way. Five aggregates, parts five sense spaces, our senses. Um, Did I say five sense spaces? Six, six sense spaces, sorry. (laughs) Seven factors of awakening, things that support awakening, and the four noble truths. So that's in the fourth foundation, is this list of lists. Now I'm going to go back to the fourth tetra. The fourth tetra is a little bit different than the preceding three, Um, And there's a number of ways we can understand how it's different. Um, Here's one way. It starts with contemplating impermanence. This can be a deep insight, a penetrating insight, to really see, to really understand, oh yeah, everything is changing, everything's moving, it's inconstant. There is nothing that is solid and still. So whereas the preceding three uh, tetrads were about getting concentrated and still getting the mind quiet, we were tranquilizing the bodily formation, tranquilizing the mental formation, then you can have this insight of impermanence. Once you have this insight of impermanence, as David talked about last week, then there's a, things start, you just have this feeling, this knowing, this cannot be a source of lasting happiness because it's not lasting so then there's this uh, fading away of involvement mental entanglement trying to make it make it make us happy cessation there's a number of ways we can uh, um, understand that it can we can use this uh cessation of holding on to and relinquishment a complete letting go we can there's a few ways we can interpret this one is how um, David described it as part of our our practice, and we can understand it as entanglement. Uh, That's a good word. I like this word, entanglement, with our experience. But it could also be kind of like in a technical way. These could be descriptions of freedom, too. It can be a fading away of sankaras of formations, cessation of formations, Sometimes it's how nibbana is uh, described. And relinquishment, a complete letting go, which almost implies there's a somebody or a something that's letting go, but it's just, uh, it's, just, uh, it's just letting go arises. So that's the fourth uh, tetran. Then we have the fourth foundation. How are these related? So we have this one sentence in here, I think it's a paragraph, and I don't remember the number, 27. And the Buddha says, having seen with wisdom, we can interpret that as insight, having seen with wisdom the abandoning of covetousness and grief, abandoning covetousness and grief, two ways we can understand that, primarily, primarily, Covetousness and grief, we can interpret that as being the first of the hindrances. Desire and ill will, they're related, these can understand as synonyms. When the hindrances are abandoned, that's the um, hallmark of concentration. It's also the first two of the hindrances, and the hindrances is the first of the list of these foundations. I'm sorry, the list of everything that's in the foundation beginning of hindrances is also the beginning of the fourth foundation and then this sentence goes on he closely looks on with equanimity equanimity is the last of the seven factors of awakening so we have the beginning of the hindrances and the end of the seven factors of awakening there's a lot of stuff in between there and all that stuff in between there, we can find in the fourth foundation of satipatthana. So it's a way that we can link these together. But you might remember, like, wait, isn't the Four Noble Truths also in the fourth foundation? Where is that? You might remember that we have cessation as a third step in that tetrad. For those of you who are familiar with the Four Foundations, you know that cessation is a key part of the Four Noble Truths. Am I getting my words yeah. mixed up? So in the Four Noble Truths has cessation, and the third step in the fourth tetrad, Vanapanasati has cessation. So there's a link there. So this was a little bit of hand-waving, and it required for you to really follow where I was going, maybe to have some understanding of what's in the fourth foundation. Maybe I'll just summarize it this way. Both the fourth tetrad and the fourth foundation are pointing to insight and letting go. Pointing to how do we find our way towards freedom? And both of them have this, maybe in a little bit different ways. The foundations, this is about viewing our experiences in terms of are they leading towards freedom or not freedom? The tetrad, Anapanasati, is more about having insight, And then just naturally what happens is kind of a letting go
5: cessation.
0: So maybe I'll leave that as a way to relate the fourth tetra and the fourth foundation. Maybe it's a little bit unsatisfactory. So I encourage you to explore, experiment, play, read, look at different interpretations, roll up your sleeves and think about it. Or just put it aside. Now, maybe I'll turn it over to Kim.
5: So, at this point, we would like for you to have a chance to discuss a little bit among yourselves um, about these factors that we've been going through over the last several weeks. Uh, We focused very much on meditation in sessions two and three before this, and so we didn't actually have small group discussion during that time. And so... um, now it's a chance to make up for that a little bit. So let's see. We actually have twelve, although I know some of you haven't, uh, maybe haven't been here up to now. So, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Um, why don't we get into? I think four groups of three is good. So you'll have more chance. Or do you guys think two groups of four? Four groups of three. Why don't you do that first, and then I'll give you the question. Very good. So our question is which tetrad or which of the 16 instructions um, has had the most resonance for you and why? So I'm going to read the 16 steps in a moment. But So we've looked at the 16 steps overall. We've looked at these four tetrads and talked about what each one represents and we've meditated with them. So it may be that one of these tetrads as a whole speaks to you you know oh I really like the body one or the mind one Um, or it might be that one particular step you know it's like oh yeah the you know the the rapture was really big for me so far I don't know what it will be so let me read the 16 and you can think about it so understands the long breath understands the short breath experiencing the whole body Tranquilizing the bodily formation. Experiencing rapture. Experiencing pleasure. Experiencing mental formations. And tranquilizing mental formations. That's the second. And then experiencing the mind. Gladdening the mind. Concentrating the mind. Liberating the mind. And finally, contemplating impermanence contemplating fading away contemplating cessation and contemplating relinquishment so which tetrad or which of the 16 instructions has had the most resonance for you and why and why don't we just have each person share for mm, a couple of minutes or maybe maybe up to a minute or a minute and a half and then let the next person go and then maybe afterwards you can ask questions or discuss among yourselves. But let's let each person just speak from their own heart for the beginning part, and the others just listen. Okay. Okay. So, kind of wi- winding up your thoughts. Um, so we can come back to the to the group. Oh, Okay, well, do you want to stay in groups and have a second question? Would that be good? Okay, what was the other one we thought of okay okay yeah so the so why don't you also um talk a little bit since you've talked about what was the had the most resonance for you in doing these practices and exploring the steps and the tetrads uh what has been a, a hindrance or a barrier? Uh, in connecting with them, so you know, did you run into areas that were confusing, or y- you found that they didn't um, work for you, or that something, uh, some literally some hindrance came up? You're angry about one step; you don't think it should be there. I don't know. I don't want to project. But what uh, what challenges have you found in relating to the sixteen steps, or where did you, where do you get stuck in some way, and? Maybe you could even kind of help each other with that, so go go for that one, okay, so we thought um at this point, if you have any questions or comments about uh any of the steps or the tetrads, you know, in a sense what we did today was our first chance to step back and start to wrap up in the sense, or unite or unify these 16 steps that was what we were attempting to do by connecting them as it is here to the Satipatthanas and so in the same way the question that you just talked about was your own uh, unification and connection of the 16 steps in your practice and uh, we're curious if you have any questions or comments about how that's been please, there's a microphone right here there you go I'm
3: curious about the use of the word relinquishment Um, in my mind it it, um, it implies an action toward something and yet my experience is that that's not what's going on, so I'm a little confused there.
5: Can you say more about your experience of it?
3: Um, something goes away hmm. Not that I do something to make it go away
5: exactly, yeah, that was I think something Diana said. Do you want to, anyone want to comment further on that? i think it's I think your observation is perfect. <laughs> And just that the word, maybe the word doesn't work for you in a sense. It's a semantic association you have with relinquishment. Go with the experience.
4: And, you know, I would add this, I guess. These words we were just commenting on a couple others that turn up, covetousness and grief, that they're archaic in English. We don't use them all that rarely, And that they, you know, they come from a period of translation. Uh, that's a couple hundred years behind us. Um, and relinquishment has a little bit of that quality to me. What I like about it, what it's, what's still valuable to me in it, is that it has a sense of giving up something e- earlier gained, particularly aspects of self. Uh, I like the idea of we relinquish a crown, we relinquish conquered lands, we, we relinquish aspects of agency. So I think there's a little bit of that flavor in it too, and that can be a very subtle and light Letting go that it just happens, but it's a it's a particular kind of letting go it, it's a uh, it, 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 that's why it's a liberating letting go
3: yes part part of my experience I think like a, a little bit today, noticing what was going on in the mind, it just seems so silly, and then you go, well what you know then we'll do
4: something else why why hang on?
3: Yes, yeah. yes,
5: yeah, I think you've captured it well, yeah, anything else
1: uh it's a little related to this, um, but I'm reflecting on these foundations and um there's almost a paradox of um of cessation and ceasing to become or an unbecoming and a becoming in terms of building foundations establishing new grounds for new something else to arise And so I'm kind of um, I'm wondering in this paradox of unbecoming and becoming, and how these foundations where these foundations fit in into becoming.
4: Paradoxes are only apparent, right? That's what paradox means. So I, I guess I would point to that, um, so that I don't think there is any, um, I don't think there is anything insurmountable there. In, if I understand the question correctly, too, we do we do establish mindfulness in order to let go and relinquish. So there is, there is effort. We do put in effort to the very end of the practice. The letting goes happens, and then we can really let go of that effort. But it takes a lot of effort. we got to show up here at 1.30 and read. And so there's a lot of... So anyway, that, that may seem paradoxical, but it, it, it's, it's, it's built into this practice, baked into this cake, integral to the way we do the work, that there is self, and a, and a healthy ego function until we relinquish aspects of self. Does that does that meet the question? Um, I,
1: when I say paradox, I don't mean it as a contradiction, right? I mean it as more complementarity of two. Because what to me, and this is complete speculation and prolapses, it seems that what we're, we're letting go of an ego self and what we're building is not another self or another ego but something around it which is the conditions that make sure that conditions that don't allow for another false ego to arise and and for so it's it's rather than having a new center it's like building around the center for t- their freedom to arise, but complete speculation again. <laughs>
4: yeah. Well, so oh, go ahead. I was just gonna. I was gonna move to. To I see that it's almost three. But if you've got something, <laughs> oh, on that, I'm sorry. If you can unsolve that tangle,
5: <laughs> do so. I appreciated that you unpacked it a little bit more. That gave me kind of. That gave me a spark, as well as what David said. Um, in that, the path is definitely constructed. I mean, in in this work we're creating um, for the purpose of letting go, as Diana said. And so um, the idea is not that we sit here neutrally and we can say, well, we can create or we can uncreate, Well, we're creating every moment, (laughs) you know, because we're not free, we're always creating. And so the question then is, what are we creating and how are we creating it? And what we're offered through path is the opportunity to spend our mental energy and function constructing the path and not constructing the self, which is what we are normally doing. I would also just, it's not the right time to go into this in detail, but examine the language. I think you said that we're letting go of the ego the ego is not a thing. Actually, it's a process. And if we set ourselves up with the idea of there's this thing that I have to get rid of or let go of, we've actually already—that's a big creation. Um, it's not—it's not quite like that. It's more undoing. And then you went to conditions, which is good. But undoing the conditions that construct what ends up looking like an ego, there's really nothing. There's there's nothing to let go of. <laughs> Um, so th- it's you know, that comes over the over time.
4: It, it's a great question to end uh, today and to look toward next week because um, the the next week is really in that we take up the seven enlightenment factors and how they figure in this text and how they're related to that. Th- th- that's all about conditions and creating wholesome conditions. Conditions in which a self and selfing of a certain sort uh, isn't necessary or is extra and. Um, stressful. So it, by way of homework, you know, the the, the the next piece is just to read this next section where it says that in addition to fulfilling the four foundations or four establishings of mindfulness, this practice of Anapanasati also fulfills the seven factors of enlightenment. And I think there you may find there's a somewhat easier correspondence. It's quite clear that some of the things we've done, particularly with the guideds, just flow very easily and directly into these instructions or descriptions of how practice sort of deepens as each condition sort of creates a cascade that makes the next condition, if not inevitable, uh, more likely. And th- this is what we can do in practice. It's really easy in our practice to focus a lot of attention on getting rid of stuff, whether it's an ego or this or, this or that, getting rid of the stuff we don't like. A lot of the practice you can start to notice with following the breath is you can notice all the wholesome qualities that start to develop as a result of this practice. And this last um, aspect of this text really encourages us to to look at that the sort of positive side of our practice and what we're building uh, or the the resilience, um, strength of practice, uh, wholesome conditions that give rise to skillful action in the world on the one hand and to deep letting go on the other so any other notes on homework that, that seems like sufficient and uh, keep practicing we were saying with ardency with awareness and mindfulness full awareness and mindfulness and without covetousness and grief for the world till next week thank you